0: Today is Father's Day. In the uh, first few centuries of the early church, the church fathers, mothers, uh, church leaders, changed the celebration, the time when Christians would gather together to worship. When Christianity first started, first emerged after Pentecost, and some of you know this, Jews and Christians worshiped together and for many decades worshiped together in the same synagogues uh, during Sabbath day. And so Jews and Christians would gather together and worship together in the same worship services, as it were, and in the same places. And as the church got older, certain conflicts started because of that, because Jews are Jews and Christians are Christians, and things started to get a little rough, and eventually... The center is here? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and so if I don't say the center, we're going to get that. Um, so Jews and Christians started worshiping together. I promise you I'm going to move. And so, Dan, don't go too far. Uh, um, Jews and Christians were worshiping together. And what happened, conflict started developing, and Christians decided that instead of worshiping on the Sabbath day, um, that Christians would worship on what began to be called the Lord's Day or the day of Christ's resurrection. and So instead of worshiping on Saturday, Christians started worshiping on Sunday. And one of the reasons for that was to distinguish themselves from Jews who they had been worshiping with and conflicts had been developing. But a second meaning for that change was to exalt the resurrection or the day of the resurrection, and to remind Christians that today is um, the celebration of Christ's rising. So Sunday was sometimes called a little Easter. And it was a day where Christians would get together and remind themselves that Jesus died, and that Jesus defeated death, but Jesus also rose from the dead. That Jesus, with power over death, hell and the grave got up again. And so I said that um, this morning because I want you to uh, remind yourself every now and again as you come to worship that it is Sunday, that it is uh, a day of resurrection, that it is a little Easter, especially on days like this when uh, we have very mixed emotions and feelings for things like Mother's Day and Father's Day. and All of us have very Uh, very past-around language like what these days mean. And so for some of us, we come and we celebrate our parents, we celebrate our own parenthood, our own um, 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 families. And for others of us, we need to be reminded that the tragedy and the death and the hurt that is wound up in days like Friday and Saturday get conquered by a Jesus who rises from the dead. Um, this This is a reason to celebrate, no matter where you come from, on a day like Father's Day. So if you hate your father, if you're not a good father, if you're not a father at all, For you, the language of Father's Day may be really, really painful, but can you sort of sit with this language of this is Sunday, this is a day where the church gathers together to remind itself that Jesus conquered death, conquered evil, conquered pain, conquered painful pasts. So that's not what I came to talk about, Um, but uh, I wanted to tell you that. This morning, um, we're, we're in Matthew chapter 4. We've been in Matthew for the last few weeks, and um, I wanted to tell you a little bit, just in sort of short form, about the start of this church. And um, some of you have heard this already. Some of you, uh, this is news too. But when we started talking about the vision to plant this church, and we started fleshing out what it would mean to plant... Um, New Community Bronzeville. The leaders, the pastors, the leadership team, uh, several ministry leaders, volunteer leaders, just started what felt like a very long series of conversations. And one of the things that we asked ourselves, especially in the staff, was this question of whether, where, rather, God had called us to, where God had already called us to as a church. And so we started asking ourselves this question of where are the people in our church coming from? Because God has called us to communities and neighborhoods through you. And so we wanted to know where God had already placed us through the lives of people like Carlos and Michelle Dotson, Sarah and Jonathan Dixon, Gina, Valentine, the Caragus. Doug and Jeannie, all of these folks, we started raising this question. Where has God called us? And where has God already put us as a church? And that became one of the strong indicators to where we would ultimately plant what became New Community Bronzeville. And so um, we started having informational sessions and meet and greets and socials, and uh, we had a cookout or two. And um, through that process, we called the church to prayer. We got together, had meetings, launch team trainings, and uh, core team meetings and um, conversations, a lot of praying, strategizing, asking questions that we didn't always have answers to. And ultimately, they, 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 there came a very very clear sense that God had called us to the Bronzeville community so that we could reach not just one community, but that we could have an access and entry point to the south side of Chicago, to communities that we weren't necessarily present in in strong ways. And so we wanted to launch this church, but to launch this church, partly because God had already called us here. We wanted to launch New Community Bronzeville so that we, as a people who are called by God, could preach the gospel, could, could share faith, could talk about Jesus, but who, who could not just talk about the gospel and share the message of the gospel, but we wanted to be a people who could live the gospel and embody the gospel and, and show the gospel. We wanted to be able to say it and show it. We want it to be a people, we want to be a people, we desire to be a people who both tells about Jesus and follows Jesus. Sometimes one doesn't come from the other. We wanted to be a church that preached about what Scripture calls the kingdom of God. And at the same time, embraced and held and embodied the kingdom of God. So in Matthew chapter 4, this language of the kingdom of heaven or kingdom of God returns to us. And we've seen it in Matthew 5. Some of you who have been a part of new community uh, are familiar with uh, this history of this language of the kingdom of God and the teachings that have been behind uh, the larger new community covenant church. Some of you uh, have ideas about what the kingdom of God is or what kingdom is or what kingdom of heaven is. Uh, And some of you, frankly, don't. And so what I want to do is read a short, a a sentence long quote from a historian who uh, we bounce around. uh, Our staff bounces around and we talk a lot about him and you'll hear his name at least a dozen times in a year. His name is N.T. Wright. And um, N.T. Wright, uh, Tom uh, Tom Nicholas Wright, is a theologian. He's actually a historian. And uh, see, no feedback, Dan. That's good. Work it out. Um, uh, he's, He's a theologian who we go to, a historian that we go to. And in his book, The New Testament and the People of God, he has this definition of the kingdom of God. He says that the kingdom of God, historically and theologically considered, is a slogan whose basic meaning is the hope that Israel's God is going to rule Israel and the whole world, and that Caesar or Herod or anyone else of their ilk is not. I'll read that again since you don't have it to read. I didn't, I didn't provide that on a slide. The kingdom of God, historically and theologically considered, is a slogan whose basic meaning is the hope that Israel's God is going to rule Israel and the whole world. And that Caesar or Herod or anyone else of their ilk is the kingdom of God is uh, the rule of God, is the control of God, or the reign of God. So God's control, God's rule, God's reign, uh, God's control, God's rule, and God's reign, uh, God will bring it about through whomever God needs to so that Israel is vindicated And so that Israel is ruled over by her God. Think about that language of God's rule, God's control, God's reign. As we come to Matthew chapter 4, verses 12 through 25. Look at this passage. I want you to read this passage with me. That means you're going to have to read aloud um, so that we as a church can hear the word of God and read the word of God together. If I drop out, I have more talking to do. Uh, you keep going. OK, so let's read. When Jesus heard that John had been arrested, he left Judea and returned to Galilee. He went first Jesus traveled throughout the region of Galilee, teaching in the synagogues and announcing the good news of the kingdom. And he healed every kind of disease and illness. News about him spread as far as Syria and the people. All who were sick, and whatever their sickness or disease, or if they were demon-possessed or epileptic or paralyzed, he healed them all large crowds followed him. People from Galilee, the Ten Towns, Jerusalem, and all over Judea, east of the Jordan River. This is the word of God for us. Thanks be to God. Everything we see and hear um, from this point in Matthew And we're preaching through and reading through Matthew. Everything we see and hear in Matthew is an opportunity to experience what Scripture talks about as the kingdom of God. And when I came to this passage, started preparing for this morning, one of the first questions that I asked of Matthew chapter 4 was, why is it uh, Jesus left Nazareth? Why is it that Jesus moves from uh, his hometown where he was born to Capernaum? Matthew doesn't give us a lot of detail, so when he says something, uh, you know, I want to know why he includes it. And and I'm going to tell you now that as I sort of go forward, there's no reason given in Scripture why Jesus moves to Capernaum. So I don't know the answer, but I think that we can look at several things about Capernaum and come to some conclusions about why Jesus was attracted to this town. And I want you to think for a minute why a Messiah, why a monarch, why a king would want to come to a town like Capernaum as I talk. And so the first thing about uh, Jesus's movement was he moved to a region called Galilee. Say that word, Galilee. Galilee. Galilee is an area in Northern Palestine and uh, it is, it is, it is more than a town. It's, it's a region. It's kind of like what we would call the Midwest or the East coast. There are many towns inside the Midwest and the East coast and Galilee during Jesus's time is an area that is controlled by non-Israelites. So this is an area that Jews aren't in control of. That's part number one. The second thing about this uh, town of uh, Capernaum and this area of Galilee and what Matthew is dropping to us as hints about this area is that Jesus moves from Nazareth after John gets arrested. Jesus doesn't leave his hometown until John gets arrested. So there, there must be something about John's arrest that instigates Jesus's movement. And if you remember John the Baptist, John the Baptist is the forerunner. He is the person who is responsible for preaching in the wilderness about the Lamb of God who would take the sins of the world. He's preaching about baptism. He's preaching about water baptism. He's preaching about forgiveness of sins, repentance from sin and it is after this man's arrest, John is the cousin of Jesus, it's after his arrest that Jesus moves and goes to Capernaum to begin preaching the same thing that John preaches. And I think what's what's there is that, that Jesus is so convinced by the message that he ultimately begins to preach, is that he said something so important, John did, that it couldn't be left unsaid. So Jesus picks up this message about repentance and about the kingdom of God. And he starts to preach, like John, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. We'll come back to that in a minute. The third thing about Capernaum is, uh, and Matthew does lay this before us, is the geography of Capernaum. Um, We don't know a lot from Matthew about this town, but we know it's by the sea. And there's an image or two of Capernaum, uh, so that you can kind of get a sense of this geography. Uh, do you have the image, Mark? Mark? Okay. This, so there are just two images, so you can see that Capernaum is by the sea. Matthew includes this in his writing, and what we know is that this town had a port for its fishermen. And scholars say that Capernaum sat on a major highway going from Damascus to Acco to Tyre. Now, I didn't include a map because I can't read maps, but you have these images to sort of see uh, that Capernaum is near. Uh, the sea. It is by the sea, and there is this, this, lo- this long highway in Capernaum from one place to another. Now, I want to read a rather lengthy bit from a Bible dictionary to give you some sense of Capernaum. This, I could lose you here, so I don't want to lose you, uh, so don't let me lose you. But let me read just a paragraph or two about Capernaum and Galilee before this time of Jesus. Okay, this just comes from Harper's Bible Dictionary. So we're talking about this tiny region. This is in a region of approximately 45 miles long to the north and south, Galilee. And it's first mentioned by Pharaoh Thutmose III in 1468 B.C. Hear that. Pharaoh Thutmose III, 1468 B.C. And he, when he captured this region, there were 23 Canaanite cities there. Now, by the time we get to Jesus, remember, uh, Galilee is still controlled by non-Israelites, but but he's moving into Capernaum, which is a Jewish city. So back when we first started learning about this area, 23 Canaanite cities there. From the time of the Israelite settlement, Galilee is associated with the tribes of Naphtali, Asher, Zebulun, you read this in scripture, Issachar. The tribe of Dan eventually moves there. So just track with me, you've got non uh, Israelites, 23 Canaanite cities. Now, two, three hundred years later, you have five or six tribes of Israel moving in to Galilee. The reorganization, says the article, into administrative districts under King David saw a consolidation of Israelite presence there. So David takes the kingship and he begins to set up structures and systems uh, for the administration of that now largely Jewish area. King Solomon, who is one of David's sons, however, returns some 20 Galilean towns to Hiram, king of Tyre. So you've got this movement here. You've got, when we first started learning about this area, 23 Canaanite cities. Later on, Jews move in, five or six tribes of Israel. David is the leader, and he begins to set up structures and administration uh, to honor this sort of Jewish presence culture in the political system. Solomon takes over after his father's death, and Solomon returns some of the towns that are now largely Jewish to a Canaanite king. So there's this movement from Jews to Canaanites. There are some Jews. There are some Canaanites. There are 23 towns of non-Jews now. There are five or six tribes of Israel. And this history moves up and down, in and out, with Jews, non-Jews. And think about the impact of the faith of Canaanites, who worship many, many gods, coming as they populate these cities. And now Jews coming and bringing its understanding of God, their practices, their religious, their understandings coming into the city, into the area of Galilee, and then all back again, and 200 years later this, 300 years later that. About 160 years before Jesus' time, there is a revolt in this area, a Jewish revolt. With the Roman conquest of Palestine, this region that we're talking about in 63 BC, Pompey recaptured many Galilee cities, Galilean cities, and incorporated them into a new Roman administration. Under Herod the Great, Galilee, together with Judea and Perea, formed a large portion of a new Judea. Upon Herod's death, Galilee and Perea were made part of the tetrarchy of Herod Antipas. I think you know some of these names from Matthew. Galilee was that area that became so important in Judaism that it ultimately produced the Mishnah and the Palestinian Talmud. These are very important books and documents in Judaism. I read that and sort of uh, pulled you through some of that so that you can hear some of the movement in Galilee's history. And Jesus uh, is coming from Nazareth to insert himself into Capernaum, a town by the sea on the major road to an area that has this kind of varied spiritual and political history. Jesus, who as Christians have called him, is the messianic one, the sent one, the one who Isaiah talks about, the government will sit upon his shoulders, moves into this region that has a past with David and Thutmose and Tyre's king, and he is coming to preach about his kingdom. So he leaves this Jewish area, a community that is home to him, that is familiar to him. And, and, and he goes to Capernaum, a town by the sea, controlled by people unlike him. And when he goes, Scripture says he preaches the kingdom of God. Now, as I said to you a few minutes ago, we don't know why Jesus moved. We don't know the motivations for Jesus' movement, but I think we know the fruit that comes from his movement. I think we can see um, that even though we can't tell why he moved, there, there, is, there is produce, there is impact, there are reasons that come from his movement. And I want to say that sometimes when we can't have our questions answered by Scripture, because one of my questions was, well, Jesus, why are you moving? And that question doesn't get answered. And I want to say to you that sometimes when we can't get our questions answered by Scripture, sometimes we're pushed to ask different questions of Scripture. And One of the, one of the answers that I walk away from, one of the questions I didn't ask, and the answers I think comes from this passage, is that Jesus encounters a new people when he moves into Capernaum. That Jesus extends himself beyond his ethnic community, beyond the familiar geography, and that Jesus takes his message of repentance to another people, stretching out God's work so that they can hear the kingdom of God, the rule of God, the reign of God, the control of God, even though people unlike Jesus, quote, control the area. Now, I'm not going to try to make some strong correlation between Jesus moving from one area uh, to you, uh, wherever you live, moving uh, to some area. You know, I I think that would be a cheap shot. So I, I won't try to say to you that because Jesus moves from Nazareth to Capernaum, well, it means that you should move from where you live to some other place. I'm not going to do that. But I am going to say to you that where you live matters. And where you work matters and where you spend your time makes a difference. Because where you spend your time, where you live, where you work, are the places that God will use you to bring to people a message of the kingdom of God. Where you spend your time, your free time, your paid time, whatever. Yeah. Where you spend your time, where you spend your life is where God will use you to impact men and women. And I think that should encourage you as you go to your neighbor um, or your neighborhood and you see people and you don't really know why you're there. You're kind of lost and you're not really sure why God has placed you where you are for the time that you are. I think you can be encouraged by the truth that God can only use you right where you are. God can't use you anywhere else than right where you are. You are. And, and church, I think that we as a community, and not just as individuals, but as a community of faith, has to nurture this confidence, one, that God has put us where we are, and two, that God can use us where we are for good. This text in Matthew chapter 4, some of you have study Bibles, and if you have a study Bible, or if you, like me, have a computer, uh, I don't even open my Bible anymore, I have a computer program, and I read the Bible on computer. Uh, which gets a little, gets a little shaky when you go places and you're supposed to carry a Bible and the pages stick together. People don't think you, they don't think you read the Bible. Um, but, uh, if you look in a Bible program or in, in good reference Bible, this passage in Matthew 4 will send you back to Isaiah chapter 9 there's a prophecy that is quoted a part of scripture that is quoted in Isaiah chapter 9 and uh, that's a that's a prophecy that Christians for centuries have applied to Jesus and put its put it uh, attached to Jesus but before we I, I rather would like you to go to um Isaiah 8 so if you have a bible uh, and the pages don't stick together turn to Isaiah 8 uh, if you don't we have on the screen Isaiah 8 and 20 and uh, I'll read this passage for you The scripture says in Isaiah 8 and 20 and uh, up to 9 and 7, look to God's instructions and teachings. Now, I'm going to ask you in a minute what you hear out of this passage, and you're going to have to talk back to me. So uh, read this or listen to this passage, 8 and 20. Look to God's instructions and teachings. People who contradict his word are completely in the dark. They will go from one place to another, weary and hungry. And because they are hungry, they will rage and curse their king and their God. They will look up to heaven and down at the earth. But wherever they look, there will be trouble and anguish and dark despair. They will be thrown out into the darkness. Chapter 9, verse 1. Nevertheless, that time of darkness and despair will not go on forever. The land of Zebulun and Naphtali will be humbled, but there will be a time in the future of Galilee of the Gentiles, which lies along the road that runs between the Jordan and the sea, will be filled with glory. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. For those who live in a land of deep darkness, uh, and that language means in a land where death casts its shadow, a light will shine. You will enlarge the nation of Israel and its people will rejoice. They will rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest and like warriors dividing the plunder. For you will break the yoke of their slavery and lift the heavy burden from their shoulders. You will break the oppressor's rod just as you did when you destroyed the army of Midian. The boots of the warrior and the uniforms of blood, uh, uniforms bloodstained by war will all be burned. They will be fuel for the fire. For a child is born to us. A son is given to us. The government will rest on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. His government and its peace will never end. He will rule with fairness and justice from the throne of his ancestor David for all eternity. The passionate commitment of the Lord of heaven's armies will make this happen. So what do you hear in uh, this passage? And it can stay there, but you can just kind of, what stands out to you? What images pop out to you through Isaiah's language? This is not a rhetorical question. This is a question where I call on you and you answer, or where you answer on your own. What do you you hear? Libby! What do you hear? Lost people. What else do you hear? Hope? Okay. Gina? Jesus Jesus is always the right answer. Uh, so you can never go wrong. You can never go wrong with Jesus, especially in church, and sometimes not even in church. You don't have an answer, just call Jesus. Yes. But that's, 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 that's Jesus, the light that's going to shine. What else do you hear? I might call on some of you else, but I might not. Yes, brother. I, I've seen a lot, like, Traveling and transformation. Traveling, transformation. So from one place to another state. Mm-hmm. Refreshing. Mm-hmm. Being refreshed. Okay. Okay. Being refreshed by God. Being changed, transformed. One or two others. What do you hear in this passage? Paul Thomas More. You hear nothing. Your first day back. That's why. Paul Thomas Morris, here's silence. Silence. (laughs) Here's here's no words. (laughs) Hey, I can, I can help, I can hook you up. I can do it. We can do this. Yes. Anybody else? Anybody else? Yeah. But somehow God's take you out of that the will show the extreme take out of extreme light So you might extreme despair, So these extremes of darkness and of hope, this despair and this light again, that God is going to bring Israel out, these lost people, these people in the dark out. We're reading through Matthew and praying through Matthew, preaching through Matthew. And some of you are in our small groups and uh, you're studying these books. And if if you're in our small groups, I'm glad you are. I want you to stay in them even when you want to leave them because, you know, uh, it can get tough being in our small groups. Um, but but for those of you in those groups, and for those of you who aren't, but you're listening to these sermons, I want to suggest to you that when you read Matthew, and when we come to Matthew four, and then Matthew five, and uh, and just kind of walk through this scripture, that you pray some of these things that are coming up and out of the language of the text. And and in Isaiah, there are many images that come up, and I, and, and I want you to pray these scriptures in a particular way from time to time. I want you to pray that God, as you read and as you study and as you listen to preaching, that God would give you something to see. That that God would give you something to imagine, that God would give you images, that God would give you something that you can visualize, something that you can see. The prophet here foretells that the Messiah will bring light, that the sent one will cause people to Rejoice. This one who is to come will break the yoke of their slavery and lift the heavy burdens from their shoulders, will break the oppressor's rod, scripture says. And I think these are visual words. I I think when you talk about breaking an oppressor's rod, you hear cracks and smashes. You you, you don't just sort of walk through script, oh, break the oppressor's rod. No, there there, there is a rod, there is a a rod, a stick, perhaps that is thick, you know, that you sort of break and it cracks and it crashes. And I think that these these are sounds that we can pray with as we come to the word of God. Because they show us something um, about the messiah 's work, when I was in kindergarten we we uh, had an activity I started to call it a game uh, called show and Tell. Did you do this in your kindergarten? Some of you did the privileged ones of us did the rest of you i 'm sorry um, <laughs> you should have a uh, show and tell and and during this activity of show and tell for those of you. Uh, who haven't uh, had this, maybe you've come along to it sometime Uh, uh, (laughs) post-kindergarten. Depending on what school you go to, I mean, you know. Show and tell, you you, you bring items um, to your classroom, right? And they're items that hopefully are fun, or cool, or at least that people think are fun and cool, and they and you bring them to class, and you know they're there. And you you can't just bring the item though; you have to you have to make some kind of connection between you and the item. I think I think it's, it's been a long time since I went to kindergarten, but um, so you have this item, and you have to say something about the item um, and why you brought it, and uh, you know. So so in my kindergarten class, I don't remember what we brought. We probably brought GI Joe and. Uh, cars and dolls and things like that. And so uh, people would say things. I can't remember in kindergarten what anybody said, so I'm not bringing this up to sort of bring back some great memory. Uh, It's not that. I'm I'm just trying to make a point that during this activity, we had these two elements of showing and telling. And I think that when uh, when we come to the kingdom of heaven in Matthew, that it is an activity of showing and telling. That, that what is happening in Matthew chapter 4 and even in Isaiah chapters 8 and 9 is that the Messiah's work, the work of Jesus, is something that we can see and hear. That all over the language of the kingdom of God and the gospel of God, we get the chance to both see and hear. I think we're being told some things. What are are we being told? We're being told Jesus' message of the kingdom of God, this message of repentance. It's the same message that John preached. And I was thinking about this, uh, and I talked to... Pastor David and Michelle a few weeks ago. Pastor Michelle, we were in the car and we're talking about preaching. And and, you know, you know, when you preach, you want to say new things because if you say old things, people don't listen to you. Because when you say old things, people figure we already got that. You know, can you move on? If you can't move on, well, I'll just check out until you say something that makes sense and that is new. Because nobody wants to hear the same old message. And uh, you know, some of you may have already been checked out for most of this because you kind of feel I've read this text before. You know, Um, and and. So when you when you get up and you talk or you preach, you want to say something new, something that's informative so that people can, you know, sort of sit and just pay attention so that people can kind of go along with you. But Jesus picks up a familiar message and he preaches the same thing that John has preached. So for those people who were ignoring John, Jesus seems to be okay with that because he's not so motivated to to get people to listen that he makes up something new. He says a very by then common message. And church, uh, here is my tie to that for us. I think that there is something about preaching repentance and, and us actually repenting and hearing about the kingdom of God that hasn't quite sat right, that hasn't quite sat well, that hasn't quite burrowed into our hearts because Jesus is still preaching the same thing. So so is there something in your life that this message still needs to grasp? Is there an area in your life, is there a place in your heart uh, where you still need to hear this familiar message? We are told to repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. We are told that the way to repent and the reason to repent are the presence and the nearness of the kingdom of God. The rule of God, the reign of God, the control of God is where God governs, where God is in control, where God is handling matters. And the reason we repent, the reason we turn away from sin, the reason we turn toward God, the reason we get away from evil in our lives is because God's rule, God's control, God's kingdom is near. When I asked you last time, we were talking about Matthew chapter 3, what is repentance? What are some of the definitions of repentance? We were talking like popcorn coming across, mm, repentance is this, repentance is that. It could be that by the time we get to Matthew chapter 4, repentance is just the nearness of God's kingdom. That for you and for me to repent is for you, and for me to say, God, your kingdom is here. God, your rule is here. God, your control, God, your governance, God, your power is here. You I mean, I don't have to get all bent out of shape, I don't have to cry, crocodile tears, Maybe it's just God, your kingdom. Is here. Jesus does not simply tell us that the kingdom of God values repentance and life change. He shows us, and he shows us by the choosing of his disciples and by the summary of his ministry as we come to the last part of Matthew chapter 4. He chooses his disciples, and he gives us a glimpse into life, into the kingdom. And I, I imagine these fellows, uh, and they're all fellows, uh, as Matthew tells the story. Uh, and he doesn't call all of them at this point. He's just given us a summary of four or five of them being called, and they're they're fishing. They're on the shore, you know. Remember, Capernaum is right by the sea, um, and uh, they're fishing. And Jesus comes, and he sees them, and I'm hearing them. Like the businessmen that they are. You know, Jesus says, come follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. Oh, fishers of men. That sounds like a pretty good marketing campaign. Fishers of men. Is he going to show us how to reach a group of people in Palestine that we haven't reached? And, you know, I, if we don't have all of the conversation here. So we don't, we don't have Jesus's tone and we don't have his eyes. We don't have, you know, him putting his hand on their shoulder and saying, come follow. me." We just have the language of Jesus saying, come follow. And follow me. And inside Matthew's account is something that strikes me. There's a phrase actually startles me. And it is this phrase, they immediately followed him. I came across an article uh, on CNN.com. And you're going to think, boy, Pastor Michael is weird for making this connection, but Uh, I am weird, Uh, yeah, it's too late for that, oh, amen, okay. So I came across this article, and I'm thinking about this language of following Jesus, signing up to follow this man who says, I will make you fishers of men, Uh, leave what you know, follow me, this article, and uh, it's entitled, Executioner, Death by Firing Squad is 100% Justice five or six lines from this article. This is an interview, sort of, and the executioner says he was eager to join the firing squad. Some of you know about this in the news, Utah. Uh, If you don't, it's okay. Not because he was familiar with the 1996 case or felt the need to deliver justice for a raped and murdered little girl. It wasn't even because his high school classmate was raped and killed just before graduation. So why did he do it? Why choose to join four other men in executing a convicted murderer? Quote, how often does this come along, he says? 100% justice. It's been more than 14 years since guns were last fired in Utah's execution chamber. But later this month, which was actually uh, two days ago, they may sound again reviving a debate about the death penalty and the methods used to carry it out. Here you have this man who is already in law enforcement, and he is talking about how he is eager to join the firing squad. He he is eager to administer justice, and he's looking forward to delivering 100% justice. So when he's asked, do you want to do this? His response is to sign me up. I thought about this guy in this interview when I came to this text. And I'm wondering in my heart, what is it about Jesus's invitation uh, to the kingdom of God when this man in, in our day is looking for 100% justice? What is it about Jesus's talk about the kingdom of God and the nearness of the kingdom of God that is so convincing and compelling? that these folks follow him immediately. I'm fascinated by this language, partly because I couldn't do it. I couldn't follow immediately. I already know. And I'm fascinated because I can hardly believe they could immediately follow Jesus. They left their business to get into Jesus' business. They dropped what they had built and created and established and nurtured to hang and to learn and to live with and to learn from this rabbi who was preaching about the kingdom that another New Testament author said was about righteousness, peace, and joy. Anyway, you look at this, you have to be compelled that Jesus must have been pretty convincing you have to come to Matthew chapter 4 and say, boy, his call was pretty powerful to these disciples if they were to follow him immediately, if they were uh, to discard everything that they knew. And maybe for us, church, maybe Jesus will not call for us to discard our entire lives as we have them. Maybe he will. But here is the question, and I'm talking primarily to Christians and to followers, as it were, of Jesus. If... Jesus said, Come follow me. How quickly would you follow? And this is what I think spiritual growth is about. This is what I think transformation is about. I think it's about shortening the time when Jesus says, Go, and we actually go immediately. Because for most of us, now there are certain ones of us, certain ones of you, because I'm not quite in the group, that when Jesus says, Go, you're, Hey, which direction? then there are the others of us who say, go. And right now, go. And it takes some time to follow immediately. And I think part of our lives are really about shortening the times between God saying, whatever he says, whatever Jesus says, and we actually follow. If some of you uh, and I'm one of your pastors, and I imagine all of your pastors would act this way, came to me, uh, and Pastor David had all the men stand up. And men, you came to me and said, God's called me to leave my work, leave my job right now, and to go and do thus and so. You've got a family, you've got responsibilities, and I'm your pastor. I'm going to say, oh, really? I'm going I'm to encourage you to exercise restraint and wisdom and i'm going to push you and 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 i'm going to sit with this tension of immediately following jesus some of you will be called to drop everything you know for jesus for the kingdom of god And in many ways, that is what coming to Christ is about dropping everything, you know, dropping everything you are under. You understand everything you're familiar with, comfortable with everything that has has created the identity. That is you. That that is what it means to come to Christ, to submit your life to Christ. But as you go along as a Christian, you know, you sort of lose touch with that. And periodically, God will come back to you and say, give me this. I want this. Give me that. I want that. And your Christian life in that moment is about following Jesus. Some of you will be called to drop everything you know. Some of you will. And and the question is, if God said, drop what you know, would you? The question is, if God says to you in your own, in, in God's own way to you, drop all the relationships that have built significance into you, meaning and worth into you, value into you, would you? And here's the thing, Matthew doesn't give us any of the the rest of the text about what it means to follow Jesus. All we know is that Jesus said follow and they followed. They couldn't have known what following meant. When I went to, uh, when I went to grad school at Wheaton, and I've got five more minutes and I'm done, Um, I I wanted to be a clinical psychologist uh, coming out of college, and so they have a a side program, and I went to their open house uh, and list, to listen to people talk about that program. And there was another professor talking about theology, and I was already in ministry, where I come out of. You can be in ministry at like ten, so. I was in at like 12, and, uh, you know, they had their plans for me my home church, and so I was already kind of a, uh, I I was a boy preacher, and um, that was already sort of secured, so you didn't have to really have uh, kind of credentials and background and this and that, and so, you know, I always sort of knew, okay, I need to do this, and there's ministry over there, Um, so I I wanted to be in counseling, so I went to this open house, and, um, you know, they had all of the people from the different areas represented, so I went to the I went to this, this uh, talk from one of the professors in the theology uh, department. And instead of studying psychology, because my, my thought at 21 was um, I'll go do the PhD or this ID, and I'm not going to want to study theology, so I better get the theology out of the way now if I want to study it, and then I'll go do the degree and I won't, I'll be done. Um, so the reason I went to study uh, in theology was you know, because I figured I'd never come back to it. And, and, and there was some, some turmoil, some turmoil there because, you know, who wants to go study theology for two years? Um, and I didn't think that I would enjoy what God was calling me to at that time. And I found out, actually, one, I found out that God was calling me to study theology, and I thought it was just something I was interested in. And I found out, too, that I actually loved it. I found out that I enjoyed what I was learning. I found out I would enjoyed what I was preparing to do in ministry, and I was surprised because I thought that God calling me would not be an enjoyable experience. I thought it would be horrible and boring. And maybe it is for some people. But so far, it's been enjoyable following Jesus. And for some of you this morning, following Jesus is going to be, you know, horrible and terrible. But for others of you, there is a surprise waiting for you with the call of God. And it might not be a life changing decision like leaving your father's fishing business business to follow a rabbi. It might just be the decision in front of you right now. It might just be Uh, the next choice you have to make. It might not be um, world-changing, but it may still be life-changing. The last part of this text is uh, verses 23 through 25. Scripture says that Jesus traveled throughout the region of Galilee, teaching in the synagogues, announcing the good news about the kingdom. He healed every kind of disease and illness. News about him spread as far as Syria, and people soon began bringing to him all who were sick. And whatever their sickness or disease, or if they were demon-possessed or epileptic or paralyzed, he healed them all. Large crowds followed him wherever he went. People from Galilee, the ten towns uh, that's in the region called Decapolis, the ten towns, Jerusalem, from all over Judea and from east of the Jordan River. Jesus is based in Capernaum. He is in this new town, but he travels outside of it, and his itinerant ministry takes him uh, to places where he teaches in synagogues. He is preaching, and he is healing. He is teaching. He's modeling what the kingdom is about. He's being followed by these disciples. He is also preaching. And maybe this is because I am a preacher and I love words and I love um, people who are able to communicate well. And I be I like being a part of that. But I don't I don't I don't think we think enough about Jesus preaching. I mean, you know, we've got some good preachers in our world and, and in our past, but just just for 10 seconds, imagine Jesus preaching. Bible says he preaches he's he's the most capable preacher he's the preacher who, in the beginning uh before time, stands on a pulpit of nothing right and preaches until everything that we see that is unseen responds to his word that's good preaching i mean that 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 is that is speech that is performative one of my theological professors will call it performative utterances utterances that that make things happen after something is said that did not happen before it was said it's it's like and and we've got a newlywed couple congratulations uh abraham it's like standing standing before uh the preacher right before the announcement uh, and you get to say, I get to say, because we get to do this, uh, I now pronounce you. And before that pronouncement, there, there's something that really isn't done until that utterance is made. It is something like that, but to a larger extent, Jesus preaching. He, Jesus is preaching. He preaches the good news that God's reign can include us. But Scripture says that he does something else. He heals and um, you guys, come on back up to the uh, instruments. Jesus, Jesus preaches, he teaches, and he heals. And I, I, I want to say um, this morning, as we um, come to the close of the message and to communion, that that God can heal you. That God can heal you. That 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 is not. Um, something that is weird, that is outrageous, that is something that is a normal part of kingdom life. We have, uh, we have doctors in our church. Um, we have nurse practitioners in our church. We have PAs in our church. And God uses you all to bring healing to men and women that you work with, families that you work with. And so when you go to work, I want you to hear uh, this language of scripture in your own practice of medicine that that God heals because you get to be a part of the healing work of God. You get to be a part of the kingdom of God in a way that some of us really don't get to be a part of. I mean, some of us get to preach, but you get to heal. I mean, you know, this. I mean, I just preach. (laughs) But but even at the end of your day, when you walk away from people who die and you have to struggle with the personal, spiritual, emotional turmoil of what it means to be healed and what it means to be freed of dis-ease, what it means for God to heal, this language is important. For those of you who are uh, working in other places and you see instances of Pain and damage you see it maybe in um, maybe in your classrooms for those of you who are in education uh, maybe maybe uh, if you're in a relationship, you see it just in your relationship you see pain you know you see miscommunication, you see heartbreak, you see break up, you see this language of God, healing is important God removes. Maladies, God God, um, takes away sickness. God God makes you whole. That's that's normal in the kingdom. And so as a church, we have a responsibility to to remind each other from time to time that God heals. And it can't, I guess it can't be weird because we're a new community, and we, you know, we're not churchy. Or you know, I'm churchy. I'm coming a little bit out of it. But Pastor Peter reminds me every now and again that I'm just churchy enough to hang out with them, but but I'm not too churchy, you know. And and sometimes, sometimes when you, sometimes when you speak biblically, you get talked about as churchy, and we've got a balance to walk in because the language of God healing is not churchy. It's It's biblical. I don't know that you want to sit at the coffee shop and, you know, you just meet somebody who's pouring you a cup of tea and you just start talking about God healing. Maybe that's just kind of weird. But there has to be this balance that you walk in your life and mine where we remind each other that that we are a part of a life, that we are part of a kingdom that is controlled by God. And in God's rule, in God's reign, in God's kingdom, healing is normal. And so we get to remind each other of that. Bow your heads. Bow your heads. As we prepare for communion this morning, um, I want want you to be reminded of something else Isaiah says. He says that Jesus, he he doesn't use Jesus' name. He's talking about the suffering servant. He says that he prophesying about Jesus, will be wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. The, the, The reason for our peace or that which is necessary to bring us peace and wholeness, the chastisement of our peace was upon him and by his stripes we are healed. By his wounds we are healed. By uh, what Jesus goes through, we are healed. And I actually want to make a make a make a switch, guys. Kelly, I want I want to make a switch, um, or maybe maybe I don't. Because you, um, I think we should sing that that other song that we already sang because the language of healing was there. I'm, I'm blanking right now. Lord, you were leading it. I think, yeah. Just as a reminder, because when we come to the communion table and we come to take the the bread, when we break the bread and dip it in the cup, it is a reminder that what we're ingesting is the body of Christ. That his body was bruised so that we could be healed. And this is not something that we just are told, but we get to be shown this. And so I want you to resist the temptation this morning of bowing your head and closing your eyes during communion. What I want you to do when Sonia and Carlos are standing and serving, when you're coming up, I want you as the people of God to look at your brothers and sisters taking that bread and dipping it in the cup. And eating that bread. And I want you to be reminded, whether you come and take communion or not, that what they are doing is a performative utterance. It is an act, not just of telling about the kingdom, but it is showing you that Christ's body was broken so that you can be healed. And in the kingdom of God, that's normal. So bow your heads and I'm going to pray. Um, And we'll have time of communion. God, thank you so much. for your word, for the truth that your kingdom is here. Um, And that in your kingdom, it is normal for us to repent. It is challenging for us to repent, but normal for us to repent. It is a common message, but it is no less important. Thank you, God, that in your kingdom, you choose disciples like us to do your work. And that your work is a work of healing. Be with us as we take communion this morning. Make these elements holy for us. The body of Christ broken for us. The blood of Christ shed for us. In Jesus' name we pray. When you're ready, come on up. But I want you to keep your eyes open. Remind yourself through open eyes that God is showing you the kingdom through this act of communion. New community. This week as you go... Uh, Listen to Jesus and what he says about you. Follow him as quickly as you can. And throughout the week, be used by God to show and tell others of the kingdom of God and of God's work. Go in the strength and peace of God. Amen.